Are you looking for your next podcast binge to lose yourself in? Let me introduce you to a story that begins with sweet romance but quickly turns into betrayal and the far-reaching consequences of one man's deceit. It's an account told by the women whose lives were forever changed by it. You probably think the stories about you is a podcast hosted by Brittany Art. And it's not just another podcast. It's an exploration of self-discovery, growth, resilience, and healing. And it's all told in a unique format. And this is why I'm so excited about this one. This is Brittany's story, but she doesn't just host it like a podcast in the traditional sense. Through immersive soundscapes and the voices of the women affected by these events, this podcast creates such a unique experience experience that's going to make your headphones glow in the dark. I can't wait to get started and I hope you'll join me. Listen and follow. You'll probably think the stories about you wherever you listen to podcasts. I found myself often surprised by moments when I felt, oh, it's great. I have a great job. I have a, a great relationships. Everything is perfect. And as soon as I realized that, I started to, to think that it will end at some point because I will die <laughs> because <laughs> maybe at some point something is going to change. My people around me won't be there anymore. So even that, even when you touch that perfection, you know that it's not going to last. That was Dr. Mathieu Vallette and you are listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. Curious what psychologists chat about over coffee? We are three clinical psychologists and busy parents who love to talk about and explore the best ideas from psychology to use in our clinical work and in our own lives. I am Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California, where I specialize in compassionate, values-based approaches to living well. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, where I specialize in rehab and health psychology and acceptance and commitment therapy. And from coast to coast, I am Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University, specializing in evidence-based therapy for relationships. In this podcast, we explore how psychological principles can help improve your work, relationships, parenting, and health. We discuss the practices we use in the therapy room and bring you ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your own life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. Hi, everyone. I'm here to bring you an episode that is an interview I did with Dr. Mathieu Vallette. He wrote a book called Mastering the Clinical Conversation, Language as Intervention, along with Jennifer Vallette and Steve Hayes. Uh, you guys, this is one of my favorite clinical books. I read it and really think about it often. I use this framework a lot when I'm thinking about what I'm doing in therapy. Um, and really what he talks about in this episode is a bit more broad. Um, he talks about the this thing that we humans do called language. And we don't just mean the words that we're saying, like the words that you're listening to right now on this podcast, but also the, the language that we just sort of do in our minds all the time in this kind of ongoing process of symbolizing and creating language. Yeah, I mean, I think that this is such an important thing from an evolutionary perspective. And I think more and more we're talking about evolution on this podcast because it's so relevant to human behavior. And I think one of the things that we know from evolutionary science is that language is really something unique to human beings and it is so powerful and so magical and yet it can create a lot of suffering because we can get really caught up in worrying about the future or, or ruminating about the past or wishing for things that aren't. And so I think in this way, it's really kind of an important thing to be looking with a lot of um, analytical and curiosity, um, curious attention at this thing of language. What are some of the ways that this episode impacted you guys when you listen to it? Well, first of all, I loved it, Debbie. It was such a good episode for me, both personally and also thinking clinically about some of working with some of my clients. And the part that really struck me uh, in the episode is when you talked about rules and how we have sort of these unconscious rules as part of our language and we just follow them without maybe ever questioning them. And for me, when I, I have, I think I have a lot of rules <laughs> that are just driving my life. And when, when it, they become problematic is when life kind of smacks us upside the head and we aren't flexible. So I've just experienced that recently with, I have some rules around how I keep my house and, and how I cook. So one of the, the rules I think I have is I always want to cook from scratch. And I've been going through this kitchen remodel and 
I had this rule about never using those squeezy sauce packets because they're full of who knows what. And I've had to like change that, like go and buy the squeezy sauce packets and, you know, squeeze them over some pre-made stuff and be a little bit more flexible. But if I stuck to that rule, I would be so much more unhappy. So I really appreciated how he addressed that. And we can think about in our own lives, how our rules keep us stuck. And even our language keeps us stuck in things that are ineffective. I think, you, yeah. I think that's yeah. such a good point about the um, the rule-governed ideas and the language that we associate with it. And I think in the couples context, in the couples therapy room, I see this all the time, that we kind of come into relationships with these ideas of how people should act, right? A good partner does this, and a bad partner would re- be represented by this. And we get really caught up in, in these ideas of, of how things should be. And I think as a result, we often miss out on some of the um, nuance that exists in most people, um, and we get kind of rigid in what we expect from our partners. And I know this to be true for myself too. I mean, just, and, and I think that that was one of the powerful things about this interview, Debbie, that you did is that I think kind of what Diana was referring to, some of these rules are so at the subconscious level that we don't even realize that we're engaging in that rule governed thinking. Um, and so I think it can be really useful to sort of take a step back and say, what are we expecting and, and sort of how, how rigidly are we expecting it? And then maybe to sort of reflect on that and wonder how, how it's serving us and how it might be interfering with either relationships or our moment-to-moment experiences. Yeah, one thing I thought was so interesting was about how often our minds will just take us out of the moment that we're in. And even if there's no actual problem in that moment, our minds will create one. So, And that by doing so, it takes us out of the enjoyment of what we have happening in our life. So I have an example. You guys know I love my beginner ballet class. I'm all my friends know I'm always talking about this. I find it really enjoyable. And I caught myself doing doing this. So what I noticed, you know, in ballet, there's mirrors everywhere. And there's all these, you know, very fit ballerinas, <laughs> ballerina types. And I found myself um, getting caught in some body criticism, just sort of comparing myself to others and thinking about how oh, I should, you know, lose some weight and exercise more and blah, blah, blah. But I was so preoccupied with that, that I was really not paying any attention to my hobby that I'm paying to be there to learn ballet. I was so preoccupied by it. And one thing that Dr. Vallette does in this interview is he talks about how we can build awareness of language process and transform it. And so what I was able to do was to be like, okay, this is what's happening. I'm getting stuck in self-criticism. There it is. Now I'm going to just kind of try to reorient myself back to focusing on why I'm here, just to bring myself back into the moment. And sometimes we have to do that over and over again, but it can really get us out of that. So listen to this episode. I think you'll find it really helpful in becoming more aware of your own language processes and whether you're a therapist or a person who wants to uh, build more motivation and meaning in your life. I think this episode would be really helpful to you. Dr. Mathieu Bellette is an assistant professor at Bastyr University in Seattle, Washington in the United States. He obtained his doctoral degree in psychology in France, where he was trained as a clinical psychologist. He moved to the U.S. in 2010 to complete a postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Nevada, Reno, under the mentorship of Dr. Stephen Hayes, who's been on previous episodes of this podcast, by the way. He then worked as an assistant professor in clinical psychology at the University of Louisiana and at the Evidence-Based Practice Institute of Seattle for several years. He joined Bastyr University as an assistant professor in 2018. Dr. Villette is the author of numerous books and chapters on mindfulness, acceptance, experiential therapy, and contextual behavioral science, including a book that we're going to talk about today called Mastering the Clinical Conversation, Languages Intervention, which he co-authored with Jennifer Vallette and Stephen Hayes. He's also a peer-reviewed trainer in acceptance and commitment therapy, recognized by the Association for Contextual Behavioral Science, and has facilitated over 100 clinical trainings internationally. So welcome, Matt. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me, Debbie. It's a pleasure. 
Well, we're happy that you're here. And uh, before we get started, I would just like to take a moment to really praise your book for a moment for clinicians who are out there. I think it's really, it's going to appeal more to clinicians, this one. Mm -hmm. it's, about, it's a therapy book, but it's one that I personally have found very, very helpful in my practice, especially just in terms of thinking of more about the deliberate use of language in the therapy room, both verbal and nonverbal, and just really thinking about the decisions that we make in the therapy room. Um, so really enjoy your book and looking forward to talking about it. Um, Thank you very much, Debbie. It's, a, it's always so nice to have some feedback on, on a book. We work for years on a book and then it's out there. And sometimes we even forget that it was supposed to be read by people. So ah. it's really nice to have that kind of feedback. Oh, good. Well, this is a person who has read it and found it helpful. And we'll be talking, I think, today about some of the concepts from the book. And even though the book itself is really, I think, written for clinicians, today we're hoping to have a broader conversation just in terms of how language is helpful and unhelpful in, in people's lives and take some of these concepts from your book to think about um, human suffering and what people can do to, to be more aware. So maybe what we can do is just start um, diving into the content here. Um, your work is really based on a theory of human cognition and language it's called relational frame theory for those who are interested. Um, and it, maybe we could just start there with language. Um, can you tell us what language is a double-edged sword? We talked about this in a previous episode with Steve Hayes. Can you start with what's good about language? What is it about language that's been really helpful for humans? Well, I mean, one thing to say, I think first is that language for our perspective, the perspective of uh, this theory, relational frame theory, but more broadly, the perspective of uh, behavioral psychology, language is a behavior. It's something that we do. Uh, in, more than that, it's something that we learn to do. Uh, there are lots of things that we, that we do when we are born or that we develop without um, thinking much uh, about it, uh, like uh, walking, eating. Uh, we develop these skills, it's behaviors, and we, we develop them progressively. We, we become, uh, uh, they, these skills become more uh, refined. But language is particular because it's something that we learn in interaction with others. We have to learn this behavior uh, socially from others uh, so it's a behavior that uh, something that we do uh, and that then transforms the way we interact with the world uh, by language we don't just mean uh, the, the words that we say like right now we're interacting with each other with uh, with words uh, but we also mean the, the the way we what we think like for example, if I'm silent for a moment, I might not say words, so it might seem like I'm not uh, doing a language, the behavior of language, but I'm doing it in different ways. First, the silence might have some meaning in terms of communication with you. Uh, and also, privately, I'm engaging in language I'm thinking. I might be thinking uh, sentences, having thoughts. I might also see pictures. I might uh, remember smells. Uh, I might imagine the future, I might interpret uh, your facial expressions, the things you say. So it's an activity that we do uh, more probably continuously in all kinds of ways. And that comes to filter the, what, the way we interact with the world. Uh, for example, right now, two people cannot see because it's only the audio, but we're seeing each other uh, on the video. And I see your face, I see you nod, I see you smile. There are things that I see, we could say, directly without language. But then there is an interpretation of uh, what I see. Uh, mm -hmm. I see a smile and I'm thinking, oh, you understand what, I'm, uh, what I mean, or you agree with me, or you're being nice. Um, if you were to start frowning, maybe I think, uh, maybe I'm not very clear, or, or the opposite, maybe I'm seeing something interesting. So you see, this is something, uh, language that comes to... Uh, um, transform the, my direct experience of the world and other people. So you were saying there is a, a good side and a bad side. Well, when we transform things, they can be in a good way or in a bad way, right? Mm -hmm. uh, for example, um, I live in Seattle and uh, it rains a lot. We have the reputation of being in a rainy city, which is not completely true, actually. Um, but it starts to rain now. So it's 
an experience, right? I see the, the rain, uh, the sky is gray and there is wet uh, drops of uh, water falling on, on my skin. That's an experience, a direct experience. But then the way I interpret it with my language can turn it into something positive or something negative. I might start to ruminate about how I don't like the rain and it's wet and I cannot go on a hike. Uh, I cannot wear whatever I want. Uh, so I can complain about it. It can become something negative. But I can also uh, look at the rain as something positive, uh, right? For example, we have a very green uh, state with beautiful trees. We don't have to uh, water the, the grass because it, it's green naturally most of the time during the year. Um, and, and, and it's very helpful also to, to grow all kinds of, uh, of uh, vegetable and, and stuff. Yeah, so, here, here in Denver, we really need right? more of it. So when it rains, it's a really good thing for our exactly. lawns, our trees. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So you start from an experience, a direct experience, the, the, the drops of rain. And then there is a whole activity of interpretation, of transformation of this experience into something that's uh, positive or negative. So when I talk about the rain, it might seem uh, like it's well, a matter of perspective and uh, it's not that big of a deal. You choose where you want to live, etc. But when we talk about, for example, ourselves, the way we see ourselves, uh, it's much more loaded in uh, emotion and meaning um, because I cannot leave myself like I leave a, a state. I want to live to, to Denver. I want to live to Seattle because it rains more or less. If there is something about me that I don't like, for example, um, like, for example, I, I'm, I'm French. I was born in, in France. I've uh, lived in the U.S. for almost 10 years now. I know my English is good enough to uh, answer an interview and to be uh, understood. I, I've had nice comments about my accent. For some reason, the French accent is something that's often uh, perceived positively, uh, at least in the U.S., but for me... It gives us a certain je ne sais quoi when we... <laughs> probably something like that, right? So, <laughs> and it's nice to hear. But often what I see in the accent is um, a lack of uh, a mastery of English. Uh, if somebody doesn't understand a word or if I hear myself uh, stumbling on a word, not finding the right uh, word to say what I mean... To me, it's not something charming. It's not, uh, I don't see that, wow, I have a skill. I can speak another language. I just uh, connect with how imperfect my English is. Sometimes even a, a sense of uh, disconnection from, from other people uh, where I live because I, there's something different about me. Uh, so you see, I can engage in an interpretation and I'm doing something. It's not something that's happening to me. It's not, uh, it's not like the weather, it's raining, not raining. It's actually something that I produce. I'm engaging in, um, in an interpretation of my behavior. I happen to speak in a certain way, with a certain melody, with a certain accent. That's, that's the experience that I perceive. I'm listening to it. But then there's all that interpretation. And so it can go in, in different ways. I can transform that experience in different ways, which is going to impact, uh, again, my experience of it. Yeah. So, and I think that I see that in the clinical room all the time and, and I'm sure you do too. And so, and, and I can relate to that in my own life too, which is that there are so many times when we put a judgment on ourselves or a certain interpretation or a self-criticism, but we really believe it. We really think it's, you know, a fact about ourselves. So the, you know, the French accent, but then people can do that with much more serious kinds of beliefs about themselves. It can be really um, difficult. Yeah. Well, a, a typical example of uh, that kind of filtering, you'll see in uh, people who struggle with depression and they, uh, they are trying to re-engage in activities in their lives. Um, you know, in therapy, they, uh, they start to plan activities like, okay, I'm going to try to go out a little more, start to see friends. Um, uh, get up in the morning a little earlier. So they're really making hard uh, efforts to uh, go back on track in their life. And when they come back to a session, they, they tell the, the, the therapists what, uh, what they've been able to do. And even if it's uh, little things, because at the beginning you expect only little steps. As a therapist, we, we think it's great. We think it's a, it's a great step. They've made a lot of efforts and they're making progress. But often they won't see it that way. 
they might uh, depreciate it by saying, well, anybody can get up in the morning. There's nothing great about it. Or uh, I wasn't even able to do everything I had planned to do. So it's a matter of perception because the, the, the filter that this person is producing uh, with that depression turns even positive things, even progress into uh, at best uh, nothing that great, but sometimes at worst something negative. For example, the, the client might think that the, the therapist is uh, praising only to be nice, not because there is real progress. So in fact, even progress becomes a sign of uh, being uh, uh, inadequate. Uh, mm, yeah, inadequacy. And I, I think one thing I found really interesting in relational frame theory and in your book is that we often compare ourselves to an ideal mm-hmm. um, or some other version of ourselves that we feel that we should be or could be. Yeah. Um, yeah, that we, we have this vision in our minds and the human mind is kind of amazing that we can do this. I mean, my dog, my puppy can't do that, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but we can compare ourselves to others. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the, the, the core of the core version of frame theory is the idea that language is, uh, as I was saying, a behavior, but if you want to define it a little more, it's a behavior of building relationships among things, a symbolic relationships among things. So you're talking about comparison what happens is that I can't really think of one thing without thinking of all the things that are related to it. If I think of, uh, uh, for example, I go for a run. Uh, like yesterday, I went to, to run for 30 minutes. But as I was running, I kept thinking of friends who run much more than, than me, like two mm-hmm. hours, and they do much more. And sometimes it's a good comparison that can make me feel good. Like I might think of... Uh, how even in comparison to myself, uh, two days before I was unable to go for a run. I was like, oh, that's great. Did you, did you see what I, you did this morning? You went for, for a run for 30 minutes. Uh, but I might compare myself to 10 years ago when I used to run for an hour. I might compare myself to other people who are running uh, on, the same, on the same road. It's because language is about building relationships. And, and, and often we define intelligence that way too. You know, it's a, an ability to adapt, but also an ability to make connections. So it's a, again, we, it's the positive aspect of it is we can make connections. Uh, we don't look only at one thing. We can connect them with uh, an infinite number of other things, uh, like a web. But the downside is that sometimes you just want to appreciate one thing or do you want to focus only on one thing. Like, can I focus just on this task right now and not be uh, distracted by all the other things that I have to do? Can I appreciate this very moment? I'm having a nice coffee with a friend and we are enjoying this moment. Can I just leave aside all the stress about work? Uh, No, I can't because everything can be connected through language. I had a client once tell me, this really stuck with me, that he would walk out out on his back porch on a beautiful morning, see the sunrise, and he would make himself very unhappy because the first thought he had was, I should be appreciating this more. Yeah, yeah. And, it's, and so the language sort of took away from the moment. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We often say in RFT, in relation frame theory, that, you know, it's like, like the mind is, the, is a sort of problem-solving uh, machine. Um, and not only, I think we'll probably talk about that later, it's not just problem-solving, but it's very powerful at solving problem and also at detecting problem. Probably it's so good at, at solving problems that it's always looking for a job, we could say. Uh, so if everything is uh, perfect, like there's nothing to solve, well, we still find a way. Like sometimes we say, oh, it's too perfect, right? right. It's too perfect. It's lacking something. Uh, it's becoming boring. See, again, there is a problem to be, uh, to be solved. Oh, we'll, we'll make one up if there's not one already yeah. there. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah. or even just the fear that it's not going to stay like that. I found myself often surprised by moments when I felt, oh, it's great. I have a great job. I have a, a great relationships. Everything is perfect. And as soon as I re- realized that, I started to, to think that it will end at some point because I will die <laughs> because <laughs> maybe at some point something is going to change. My people around me won't be there anymore. So even that, even when you touch that perfection, you know that it's not going to last. Yeah, and we like to remind ourselves of this as humans. I think, again, my 
my puppy can't do that. But we as humans, we're always in contact with that possibility of loss or things could go horribly wrong. Yeah. 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 Now, I think one really interesting thing that that you've talked about is rule following Mm -hmm. and how rules, part of of what we're doing with language is creating rules for ourselves. And I actually loved a personal example that you gave in the workshop that I went to in Montreal. I don't know if you remember about your own relationship with rules and rule following. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about rules and yeah, yeah. yeah. I, perhaps you remind me the the example. Okay. I, I I use different examples, but it's I find the topic of following rule really really interesting. First, I want to explain how how we define rules in RFT, because it's a, a rule is a term that we use in everyday language, but we have a, um, definitions a little more specific. First, a rule is um, it's it's a production of language, right? Um, so we could say it's a thought, for example, or the way I speak to describe actions and um, their consequences. So for example, if I say, if uh, I open the door, then uh, it will be cooler in the room. We could, we could consider that a rule in our jargon because it, it describes a behavioral sequence. You do an action and uh, this consequence will happen. Uh, so it's not necessarily a rule in the sense of you have to do that. It's just a description of what will happen if you engage in a given action. A recipe uh, is a set of rules. Uh, you follow the, the, the steps and you will uh, make the beautiful, very uh, good chocolate uh, cake if you follow the, the steps as described. The rule following is a behavior, right? So describing the behavior sequence, producing a rule is a behavior, it's language, but then rule following is another behavior. Sometimes we forget that because when we listen to our clients, they might say, I really have to uh, find a job or I have to be perfect. And, but that's a production of a rule. But then do, do they follow the rule or not? Right? That's another thing. I produce a lot of weird thoughts every day. I'm sure you do. Everybody do. And we don't necessarily follow all these rules. It's more like um, there's a lot of options are available to us. Um, like when we want to make a decision, you know, if I, uh, order food to, to this Chinese restaurant and I know what I will get. It will be very good. Okay, but then I can order Italian food and then I will have spaghettis and I love spaghettis. So I can produce all these rules, these predictions, and then I can follow them or not. So the topic of following rule is very interesting because um, we can then observe what makes us follow different rules. What is the process that leads us to follow rules? And one in particular that I found very interesting in clinical work, and I think it would interest people in general, it's that we often follow rules without paying attention to the utility of following this rule. Um, we uh, follow rules just focusing on doing what the rule says, but we, we, we lose touch with the purpose of it. We lose touch with the consequence that is described by the rule. So it would be like uh, following a recipe, you do exactly what the, the recipe says. But as you, you follow a recipe, something, something is not working. Like, for example, maybe the recipe says to add uh, uh, four pounds of uh, sugar. For your cake, right? <laughs> this is four pounds. Yeah, your reaction is oh, a little so sweet. You, yeah. you should notice that something is probably not right there. It's probably not going to be good. It's going to be very, very sweet. But you do it because it's in a recipe. And by the way, that's an example that is perfectly true of me. When I follow recipes, I very rarely question recipes. Why? Because I tend to think that the person who wrote the recipe is right. I, I, I see myself as not a, not a good cook. I like to cook, but I'm not particularly good. So I trust 100% what people say. And so I will often just follow the recipe no matter what. I will just focus on doing what the rule says. Eventually, when I taste the cake, hopefully I will realize, oh, well, something went wrong there. But I won't question it on the other way. Um, other people who know, um, who know cooking much better, they will often pay attention and say, mm, four pounds of uh, sugar or something wrong there. That's a very strong example, but uh, people who are very knowledgeable in cooking will probably even make changes that are much more subtle than that. Say, hmm. I don't want to use that kind of uh, vanilla. I'm going to use a different kind because it will be better. It will go much better with uh, what I'm preparing uh, beside that. 
So this, this ability of adapting the rule and adapting the way you follow the rule to your uh, actual experience is a really great skill, right? It means that you have to uh, listen to the rule or read it, but also uh, compare the rule with what you get with it, right? It's mm -hmm. like, another way of, of uh, thinking of it is like a bit like a GPS. You know, you have a GPS in, in your car. Everybody has a GPS now pretty much in their cars or on their smartphone, and we use it a lot. But if you don't look at the road, if you, sometimes it won't get you actually where you want to go because the, the GPS might mean be uh, up to date or uh, make mistakes. There is a problem of connection. So you do have to pay attention to the road too, to your own experience. So mm -hmm. road following, uh, there's different ways of following it. Either uh, you just follow it blindly. I do what the rule says. And we often see that in therapy. Um, we see clients who follow certain rules without paying attention enough to the utility of following this rule. I, uh, I have an example that I caught myself in one recently which was that I noticed I have a rule that I've come up with from my own learning experience that I can't like rest, you know, take some time to just do nothing or even do something just relaxing or even sometimes I feel like I can't exercise unless I'm caught up on the important work. You know, my to-do list is down to zero. And I catch myself in this frame of mind sometimes and what I have to remind myself, I lose something by following that rule, which is that I don't get time to just take care of myself and relax because my to-do list will never be at zero. Mm -hmm. And so I have to remind myself, okay, it's okay. It's really important to me to stop and take care. I, I need to build some flexibility in there so that I don't just lose the opportunity to, to relax. It's a great example. It's a, it, I would say it's an example where your rule is not – uh, inclusive enough of the different experiences and different important things in your life. Uh, it could even work uh, for your peace of mind at work to finish every day with having finished your to-do list. But what about other contingencies? What about other parts of your life? What about the time that you spend with your family, for yourself, uh, mm -hmm. uh, watching TV? <laughs> just yeah. uh, And what about this to-do list, so to speak, right? Uh, and also you say it never really ends. Uh, I find myself sometimes wanting to answer all my emails because then it'll feel good. But how long does it last that you don't have any email? You know, right. it's maybe an hour and then there's a, already one more. So if the rule says you'll be okay once the, you finish your to-do list, but the to-do list never ends, well, <laughs> the conclusion right. is you'll never be okay. Um, so how can we uh, either follow the rule with more flexibility or even uh, enrich a little bit these uh, rules? Perhaps the rules could say, um, do, uh, do a bit of, of to-do list, so maybe five items, and then spend some time doing other things. Mm -hmm. uh, take into, or the rule could say, take into account work, but take also into account uh, your well-being. Right? And so often in, in therapy, that's our job, right? Is to help clients pay attention first to the rules that they are following because often they don't even realize that they're following these rules and then pay attention to how it's working for them to follow these rules. Yes, yes. Now, the example that I remember from you was, now, my, myself, I tend to be a bit of a blind rule follower. I, at least I used to. I think as I get older, less so. I'm a little more willing to to break the rules. But you had your own response to rule following that became a rule. Do you mind sharing yes. that? Yes, yes, yes. I remember. Yeah. Um, it's, I think it's something that uh, probably characterizes my, my personality for as long as I can remember, uh, or I internalize things that I've heard because I, I think my parents, my teachers, even when I was uh, young would say that about me, that I tend to, to, to want to do things my way. Um, I remember teachers telling me, for example, when I was six or seven, they were, advised me to underline in red uh, important things that I was writing, you know, like you take notes and you take And I remember re rebelling against that because uh, I didn't feel like I needed it. Um, I still don't know for sure if that was true that I didn't need it or I was just rebelling against being told what to do. It's hard to tell. I think it's not clear cut. There's often a little bit of uh, both in there. Uh, I think I probably kind of knew what was good for me um, but I was probably also rebelling a bit against that thing of being controlled. So what can go wrong 
in uh, there. It's not that I pay attention to what I need and I, and I trust myself. What could go wrong is to uh, turn any kind of uh, rule as something that you should not follow, especially rules given by others. Uh, so you could end up questioning every time somebody gives you an advice, a piece of advice, or you join an institution and you see the policies of the institution and every time you're like, that's stupid, I shouldn't have to do that. <laughs> or I'm going to do it a different way because uh, that's, uh, I know a better way. Uh, or, or it's arbitrary, seeing arbitrariness everywhere. Um, in fact, it becomes a rule too. Uh, a rule that's not necessarily helpful. Uh, it, the rule becomes, if I'm given a rule, uh, I won't follow it, even if it could actually be good for me. Right. Even right? a helpful rule, your mind is telling you, don't Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's what we call in our jargon counter-pliance, uh, because the, the, the way of following a rule without paying attention, if it's helpful, we call it pliance. It, it's the idea of, I do what the rule says, no matter what. Counterpliance is, I don't do what the rule says, no matter what. Yeah. So just to continue on this sort of personal tack, I know that one of your book co-authors happens to be your wife, mm -hmm. who's also a psychologist. And I'm, I'm always intrigued by double psychologist families. My husband is in, in the field. I wonder if there's ways in which this concept of relational frame theory and these ideas we're talking about today play out in your family life, in your, your relationships with others. Yeah. Well, I think... Um one of the ways that uh, RFT has uh, helped, uh, I would say even in general, my, my communication with others, but it definitely applies to my relationship with uh, my wife, is um, the, the use of perspective taking and what we call so inclusion uh, framing, so a way of building a sense of commonality with others. Um, perspective taking is very important for, for empathy. It's very important to... Um, have a sense that people have different experiences and different filters of experiences, right? As I was saying earlier, language produces a filter and because it's a behavior, we all have different histories around these behaviors. You, uh, Debbie, uh, think differently than I think. We have different histories. Uh, I think differently than my wife thinks. It's actually hard to remember it because when we're in a romantic relationship and for a long time, there's an aspiration that, of course, we're going to connect, we're going to be in sync. And people have different views on that, uh, different expectations on that. But there's a sense that we should be uh, connected, right? That we should uh, maybe not be the same, but be on the same page in many ways. So the difficulty is to find that sense of commonality without denying that we have differences too. It's a really uh, change. In, in a way, I, I feel like it's the the number one challenge of all relationships is how do you find a good balance between a sense of uh, commonality, common ground, while acknowledging and even celebrating that there are differences. So I was just mentioning this term inclusion framing or that we call so hierarchical framing in, in, in RFT. Um, it's a way, so it's, a, it's framing, it's a, a way of, um, of using language um, and in this particular case, it's how I can bring together things that are not exactly the same, right? Inclusion. So metaphorically, it's like when we say, for example, I have a, a container, say a, a bowl, for example. Inside that bowl, I can put all kinds of ingredients. I can put carrots, I can put beans, I can put meat or fish. Well, okay, beans and fish is not the same thing, but they can both go in this bowl because I'm preparing a, a recipe, a dish that comes inside this bowl. Um, so bringing this metaphor to a relationship means what? It means how can we have a sense of inclusion and still have variety inside this bowl? Because if it's only the same thing inside, it's going to get boring very quickly, right? And plus, it's just not possible because the thing is, I'm fish and you're meat. <laughs> you know? you are, we are different. So if we expect us to be the same, uh, it would be an equivalence framing, right? The sameness, exactly the same. And we often see people wanting that in relationships, right? They're trying to uh, remove the edges of their selves so that they can be well together. We often do that even without thinking of it. We try to reduce our differences, try to emphasize what we have in common. 
there's a lot of research on the on dating and the way people develop their relationships that we, we do that naturally. We, we emphasize things that we have in common. But if we do that to the point of removing our differences, what happens is that we, we can get bored. Uh, we, at some points, uh, need to reclaim ourselves. We're like, okay, I'm not just that. You know, I'm more than that. I want to be more than that. You don't know me. Sometimes we hear that. We don't know me. Well, it's often because we have engaged in that process of reducing these differences. Um, so, um, the, the way I've found that helpful in my, in my relationship, um, is to, when I'm, when I'm, when I succeed at connecting with this sense of inclusion, which is hard, um, is to remember that there's something bigger that, uh, brings us together. That is not necessarily the specific behaviors, the specific, uh, aspects of our personalities that can be different actually we should even celebrate that difference but there's something larger than that even larger than us that can bring us together it is whatever we want it to be it can be a sense of connection it can be a common values it can be common um, goals in life but inside of that common ground then we can uh, we can be uh, we can be different I think that's a really helpful perspective to take when you find that there's some conflict or something like that going there. So to look at that big picture and to be more accepting of one another. And I actually think we could even take that idea to a grander scale. I know something that's important to you is diversity and inclusiveness in terms of, you know, gender and, um, you know, race and culture and whatnot. And so I'm just wondering if you had any thoughts about what relational frame theory has to say about things like discrimination and prejudice and how it can be used maybe to help with that yeah. social justice. I, I, think, I think there's research to be done in RFT on this topic, but conceptually, if I, if I approach this topic with the, the, the concept that we already have and that uh, have been studies in different domains, I would say um, when we think of diversity and inclusion in our societies, it's not very different from what I said about a relationship. We, first, we, we have to acknowledge that there are differences among people. There are differences among individuals. There are differences among groups. Like in a, in a country like the U.S., they have different communities uh, based on where they, they come from, different countries, based on the color of their skin, based on their original language, based on gender, sexual orientation. Um, and at the same time, we want to live together. We live in the same country. We live under the same uh, laws, constitutions. So there's a sense of togetherness and there's also a sense of difference. So again, the tension is how do we uh, live together? How do we find common ground without removing our differences? It's fascinating to see how different cultures approach this tension. Where I come from in France, uh, this sense of togetherness is approached generally by um, removing this. Uh, so for example, it's, it's what is often called the, 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 the approach of color blindness. That's uh, uh, very much criticized in the, in the US. And um, I'm not sure it would be endorsed as color blindness in France, but I do think it corresponds to this approach. Basically, it, we, in France, people emphasize that everybody is French and you should not uh, mention uh, the color of skin, where you're coming from, you're French, just French. In fact, there was a little bit of controversy a couple of months ago after France won the, the Soccer World Cup, football as we call it uh, in, in France, uh, because some people from outside France, Africa won the, the World Cup and, uh, and, and, and people are very upset in France to hear that not so much because they thought, well, no, it's France, it's not uh, Africa, but because actually the, the, the players from the French team who have some, have uh, many, I should say, have origins from uh, countries in Africa, a few were born in Africa, but few, most actually uh, were born in France. So these players actually didn't like this comment at all. They didn't like this comment because they feel like they are French. They want it to be recognized that way. Not, they don't want to be called African. Because in the context of France, if you recognize differences, then it's a step toward being excluded. There is not enough an inclusion frame that recognizes that people have differences. To be included, you have to be the same. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are advantages and disadvantages in looking at it this way. 
um, an advantage I see when I go to France is that I think that people are much more mixed than I've seen in the US. It's much less based on uh, communities, neighborhoods. I feel like people talk to each other without paying as much attention to uh, the color of their skin. There is racism too, there is prejudice too. I'm not saying it's, um, it's, it's protective from that, but I see a lot of, of mixes. The downside is uh, you have kind of have to deny your, that you're different. You have to deny that you have your own culture. Uh, it's, it's often not very well perceived if you, uh, you would want to celebrate uh, some holiday from your own culture. Uh, if you speak your own language, people won't like that. Uh, whereas what I perceive of the, the model in the US is much more based on recognizing, emphasizing that there are differences. Um, you come from a different country, you have a different culture, you can celebrate your own uh, holidays. People talk a lot about that. The downside of the, the system in the US, in my, in my opinion, is that it can create more separation among people, more differences, because we want to emphasize that people are different, then we can also have a hard time bringing people together. So I'd say it's not like one system is better than the other per se. It's, I think something is missing. It's more that sense of how can we really define what uh, brings us together? What, what do we have in common? There's been times in the US when that was very strong. For example, after 9-11, because people really felt attacked from the outside, there's a sense of togetherness for American people. I, did, I was not living in the US at that time, but it was everywhere in, in TV and I, I talked to people. And, and even the way people talk about 9-11 still today, you can sense that togetherness uh, um, showing up. People from the South, from New York, from the East Coast, the West Coast, it doesn't matter. There's that sense of we're American. Um, so sometimes there are events like that that brings that sense of what makes us uh, the same at some level. But even that can be uh, fragile, right? Like right now, these past few years, a lot of people are questioning what is it to be American? There's people are, um, are talking about patriotism. They're talking about the national anthem, the flag. And you start to see differences even in how to approach that. Yeah. My personal opinion, very personal, not an RFT expert, huh, even I, informed by RFT, but my personal opinion is that the best way of finding commonality is at the level of being a human being. I think it's even more important than knowing what country, what language, what color of skin. We are humans. I'm talking to another human being. Uh, because even inside the same country, the same color of skin, there will still be differences anyways. But what I think what's important to recognize is that there is something that we have in common is we are humans. So if I can find that sense of inclusion at this level, it brings a sense of connection, a sense of maybe even of trust and safety between us that can allow us to have the curiosity and openness to explore a variety of things inside our, our communities. Yeah, and I think kind of getting past those it, to the deeper level and valuing the differences. To me, that seems really important. Um, that or just valuing what each human has to offer and each person is unique. I think it just, you know, I had a conversation on the podcast with our mutual friend, Robin Walzer, mm -hmm. and we talked about, um, you know, valuing what women bring to the world instead of the solution being that, that women are supposed to be more like men or they're supposed to fit in the, the dominant culture. But what about looking past that and valuing each person as an individual? It seems yeah. like it yeah. has some hope to me. It's, it, it, I, I really like this approach, thinking, okay, we have differences. Um, often people are in a, in a place of, of being oppressed or in minorities. They are seen as the, almost the anomaly, you know? It's like, okay, well, you, how can we help you be like us, you know? Mm -hmm. It's like, I go back to my French accent. It's like, okay, how can I improve my English? We can look at it in a different way. You can say, okay, what do you bring uh, to that? Maybe you'll make our language uh, evolve. Uh, maybe you bring a different melody to a conversation. Uh, maybe you have a way of thinking, which is very much true when you, when you spend so much time in your life in a different culture. Even if you learn a new language, there's still an influence from a way of thinking with your language. So what do you bring? What are the, the particularities of your history that, will, that can help the, the group? Uh, back to my metaphor of a bowl and you put different ingredients in it. 
and there is diversity, you don't want to necessarily put everything uh, in a way that's not uh, coherent at all. There's ways also of uh, harmonizing this, uh, these connections, of course. Um, but diversity, uh, and we know that even from evolution uh, theories, is good for everybody in the end. Right. But it's scary. It's scary because differences uh, can be perceived as threats too. Again, we go back to our uh, filter, the language uh, filter, right? If we're different, what does that mean about me? Compare ourselves. Um, it's hard to appreciate differences uh, without being um, also threatened. We're not very well trained to, uh, to value differences and to feel safe at the same time. Yeah, I think it takes some, some work for people to get to, to, to get that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So one of the chapters in your book is about finding meaning and motivation. And I love this chapter because I think it's really applicable to people. And so I, let, maybe we could start and with motivation and do a little bit of both. Can you tell our audience a little bit about how you would work with a therapy client to help build motivation using this framework? Well, again, I'm, I'll say motivation is a behavior. Uh, there's lots of concepts like that that um, we, when we approach it from a behavioral perspective, they become very uh, practical because instead of thinking, oh, I have motivation, I don't have motivation, you know, uh, like, oh, uh, what can I do to motivate myself? What can I do to find motivation? It connects you more to what you can do. Uh, so the way I work with clients around motivation is I'm thinking, what can help you uh, real motivation. What do you need to increase the likelihood that you will engage in that behavior that you want to do? For example, clients says that they want to go back to exercising. Okay, so at what time do you want to go to exercise? Uh, at 7 a.m. Okay, every day, every other day, every other day. Okay, so we define the, the action of exercising. And now, what is, where is the motivation in all that? Motivation, from an RFT perspective, uh, from this language perspective, it's all the things that you're doing with your language to uh, make the, the action more, uh, more attractive, more desirable, more um, pleasant, more, more uh, motivating. Uh, so, for example, if I think of getting up at 7 a.m. and start exercising, the, what is the first thought that comes to mind? Is it, yeah, great, I cannot wait to go there. Well, probably it's going to work. Although you have to see if that thought is still there at uh, 7 a.m. Because what you think now, the behavior of thinking that now might not be the same tomorrow at 7 a.m. If it's the same, you're probably going to get up and it's going to be fine. But if it's either the same or even right now, the first thought that comes to mind is, it's going to be tough. Uh, I'm going to be tired. And it starts to rain now. It's dark at 7 a.m. So you see, I'm engaging in all kinds of thinking um, that, de that decreases the likelihood that I can do it. So um, what we can do, and there are different models of psychotherapy work on that. I'm thinking of motivational interviewing, for example, which has a lot of techniques that uh, make perfect sense from a, an RFT perspective. And when I think with RFT, I don't think of it as a model of psychotherapy, but more as a framework, a way of thinking about therapy or coaching or education inside of which I, we can put a variety of techniques that come from different models. So for example, I find motivation interviewing extremely uh, uh, useful and extremely um, effective. So some things we can do is ask questions to a client to help them connect the action to a source of motivation. Motivation interviewing does that very well. You know, For example, they start with asking, uh, what's your level of motivation to go back to exercising on a scale of one to 10? And it might say four, okay. So why is not three? Uh, do you actually, here you use comparison framing for, good, for, uh, for a good purpose. You were saying earlier the problem of comparison, it can lead to uh, depreciating ourselves. But here comparison is helpful because if I say, why is your motivation four and not three? Well, it orients the client to what is a, a reason to actually exercise. They'll say, well, because it's, it's important for me to exercise. Uh, I've been wanting to go back for a long time. Uh, I might also say, what do you like about exercising? What did you choose to do? Uh, are you going to run? Are you going to bike? Are you going to do some uh, um, workout at home? And why do you do that? What's, why, why that choice? By exploring the sources of motivation, by having the client engage in this behavior, 
Tell me about it. Verbalize it. Tell me. I want to see the emotion too. I want to see on the client's face some connection with what they're saying. I'm increasing the connection with, between the action and the source of motivation and make the action more likely to happen. Okay. Yeah. So it also helps them kind of picture it, to think about their future self, to be yeah. even aware. I would think of, like I know myself, if I try to wake up early to go for a run, I'm really likely to say to myself, ah, I don't feel like it. I'll do it tomorrow. And mm-hmm. I need to catch myself doing that. Yeah. Do the behavior. So my motivation might be really low, but I can still yeah. go ahead and do things to increase the odds that I'm going to yeah. do it. Well, we go back to what we were saying earlier about rule following. When you say, oh, maybe I can do it tomorrow, I'll feel better. You're producing a rule. You're saying, if I go tonight, uh, now I can sleep more and I'll be better. You know, we, we do this all this, this rationalizing uh, yeah. uh, when we don't want to do something, we procrastinate. You know, I get up at 7 a.m., oh, but I'm really tired. That's not a very good idea. Actually, I could maybe even injure myself if I go to exercise now because I'm not well rested. It'll be better tonight. So I'm producing a rule. But then another rule comes and says, oh, well, I already said that yesterday and it didn't work. So it's going to happen again. And uh, I, actually, I'm just rationalizing. It's not really. So we produce that all the time. Yeah. And then it's which one are you going to follow, right? Which one is going to be helpful? Um, so uh, sometimes what, um, what can be very helpful is um, to take perspective, you know? Uh, for example, if I picture myself tonight reflecting back on my day, what would make me feel like I've, I've done something meaningful? What would make me feel good about my day, myself? And that generally helps me a lot. I'm thinking at the end of the day, I'm thinking, oh, I love that feeling of having exercise in the morning, just as I said I would. You know, that sense of reliability and um, being able to, to do what I had planned to do really makes me feel good. So if I can connect with that distant perspective, it can help me find the motivation in the moment. Yeah. Like the pers- taking the perspective of your future self Yes. and thinking what's important to me, what's that future self going to really, you know, appreciate Yes, is a helpful yeah. way to use perspective taking in order to build motivation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. perspective taking like that, we, it's things we can use with, with clients uh, in all kinds of ways, you know, have them take the perspective of another person, have them take the perspective of a past self, future self. Uh, and it, every time it's a transformation of the, the experience. The experience is, what do I feel at 7 a.m. when the time comes to exercise, right? In this moment, what, what do I want to do? But when I take different perspectives, it's, it's like it brings a new filter and so if we can train clients to engage in the filter that's most helpful, in engaging in the languaging right, that's most helpful, that helps them to live the life that they want to live. Yeah. Well, and speaking of, final question today, and then we'll, we'll wrap up here, which is about the other part of your chapter, um, finding meaning. Yeah. And so how would you use, again, this framework to think about helping a client or, you know, a listener to this episode build more meaning in their life. You know, I said earlier that uh, often we talk about uh, language, intelligence as a a problem-solving machine. It's often talked right that way in the the acceptance and commitment therapy, in the mindfulness uh, tradition. But I think that when we think of it only that way, it's a little pejorative. It feels like, well, okay, thinking is just like to solve problems to repair cars and you know, it's more than that language is um, or intelligence is also what produ- produces meaning and purpose uh, abstraction in our lives that's you don't have spirituality without language you know you referred a couple of times to saying my puppy can do that yeah my puppy cannot find the key of the door but you can it also can't uh, uh produce poetry it cannot connect with uh, deceased ancestors uh, reflect on the future self. And all these things are also very important for our well-being. It's, uh, it's not, like we say, it's not just a curse. It's also something very, very bright, something that brings uh, a very, very special vitality in our lives. So meaning, how do we want to approach it in our FT? Well, in a very uh, concrete, uh, practical way, uh, we found a definition of um, of. Um, meaningful purpose that's based on a kind of reinforcement. Remember, it's a behavioral theory. So of course, there are some terms that we use that are very behavioral, like reinforcement. But it's not any kind of reinforcement. It's, it's positive. So it's not something that we want to just to avoid. 
but something we want to approach, something that's going to enrich our lives. Um, it's intrinsic, so it means that the reinforcement comes from engaging in an action, not from an outcome. I'll give some example after. And it's something that's overarching, not specific. So it's not limited to an action or a goal, but it can touch on a variety of actions and goals. So for example, if uh, one of my uh, values, one of the things that bring purpose and meaning in my life is to share with others uh, my knowledge, helping others uh, discover new things, which I think is something that I'm connecting to this morning with you during this interview. Um, there's lots of ways I can do it. Interview, uh, teaching, um, it can be having a conversation with others when I tell them a little bit about psychology, uh, even people who are not in, in psychology. Um, so there's all kinds of ways I can share my, my knowledge. So it's overarching in that sense. If it was specific to one action, it would be, I can only do that when, for example, I write a book. It's the only way I can share my knowledge. Well, I would be pretty limiting, right? I would have to only write books. I would only have opportunities to connect with this sense of purpose by writing books. That, that would be probably a bit difficult to, to live my life in that way. Um, I say it's intrinsic. It's, that's an important part. It means it's not based on the result of my action. When I share my knowledge, as I'm doing it with you uh, during this interview, I am connecting with this value, with this purpose, because I'm doing the action, not because it's a success or not. I don't know if the interview is, uh, is good or not good. I don't know how many people will listen to it. I don't know if people will enjoy it or not. I don't know that. What brings meaning to it, it's not the result of the action. It's because I connect to my value of sharing my knowledge. Maybe I'm not doing a good job, but it's still meaningful. That doesn't mean I don't care about the quality of my work. I'm still trying to be clear. I still try to, to, to be uh, interesting, engaging, and I pay attention to the feedback. But that's another thing that's important too, but it's not what brings meaning. What brings meaning is that it's linked to my intrinsic value. And finally, positive. I want to have that sense of engagement, which uh, I'm feeling very much right now. Um, and I... I enjoy uh, sharing my knowledge. It's not just, oh, if I don't do it, then I'm not being a, a good fellow, you know, inviting me to this interview. If my motivation was just not to disappoint you or I can't say no because then I'm going to be judged. That's a source of motivation too. Uh, it could be very powerful, but it's not something that brings life to me. It's not something that brings that positive energy. I want to connect with something that's, that's positive. Um, so when you bring these three qualities, positive, intrinsic, and overarching together, uh, you can help clients back to the therapy room uh, or coaching, education. Uh, you can help clients um, formulate their sources of motivation in life based on these different forms of reinforcement. I listen to what clients are saying. So I say, what do you want in your life? What's important to you? And I listen, are they talking in terms of avoiding things or are they talking in terms of approaching things? Are they talking in terms of outcomes? Uh, or for example, I want to spend some time with my friends uh, because we're having fun, because I like the, because I want to be popular on these things. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I can see it's a source of motivation, but it's in extrinsic. It's not, it doesn't depend just on engaging in the action. You need an outcome. So if you need an outcome, the problem is you depend on the outcome, mm -hmm. right? It, it's, it's less freedom. And so, and so on. So I pay attention to the way clients, uh, clients uh, talk and progressively I try to help them connect with um, sources of reinforcements that will bring them more freedom and more vitality. You know, as a therapist, there are so many things that can be rewarding in this role, but when you see clients start to have more vitality, more engagement in those kind of activities that give them meaning that, that are important to them and act in the ways that are consistent with your values. That just makes it all worth doing what we're doing. And I think, you know, in our own personal lives too, as human beings who happen to be therapists, it's the same thing that yeah. moments like this, when, you know, you come on my podcast and it's, it's not the, you know, it's, there's some challenge in doing it and yet it's connected to a value and it has a sense of vitality to it. Um, those are the wonderful moments to savor. Yeah. And, and it's, and you have something hard to remember is you have to engage in that connection. It's not, like I said, it's not just like the weather. Oh, nice. It's sunny day today. Wonderful. I'm so happy. 
No, when, it's, when you talk about value, valuing, connecting with purpose, it is something that we do. As I said at the beginning of the interview, language is something that we do. If, if, if you approach it that way, then you realize that you will find meaning because you engage in that connection. Like right now, as you were talking and saying uh, the, the, the purpose of doing this interview, what you're enjoying, that made me think of it too, engage in that too. And I started to feel also more alive, more connected to the purpose. Uh, it's, it's available, but it's not going to be done on its own. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's a, I, I like to think of it a bit as a mental gymnastic, you know, it's after, okay, uh, I could spend my whole day doing things just because I have to, just because I want to avoid troubles. But can I also shift to also uh, connect with what it brings to me, what's positive, what's intrinsic, what's overarching? And I insist on saying also because I don't want to suppress any, any thoughts. It doesn't work well. If I say, no, 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 I should not think negatively, that's not good. That's not what I'm saying. It's not positive thinking. Think positive, not negative. It's, okay, you're thinking negative. Okay. Can you also bring the connection with your positive uh, sources of motivation? Because if you also do that, you're going to bring a different kind of experience here. Yeah, you know, back to my client who would stand out on the porch and enjoy the sunrise and then immediately tell himself, what's wrong with me? I should be enjoying this more. I said, well, that'll happen. So let's just acknowledge that and keep standing on the porch. Yeah. And that thought's going to pop up. And yet you're taking an action that has some meaning to you just by getting out and enjoying that moment. Absolutely. And yeah. perhaps even that thought of what's wrong with me, maybe even say something that's important. Yeah. Uh, like when I was saying uh, everything is perfect and then I think, oh, but uh, it will end some point. Well, it also tells me something important. It's that, wow, everything is uh, short, you know, and uh, you cannot take anything for granted. And there's something beautiful also about it. Again, it's that transformation that we can operate at each moment. You know, you're saying, well, you can look at it as a thought, you know, and just let it be there. So your client has the thought, what's wrong with me? But as soon as this thought comes up, you can also engage in a transformation of it. Oh, it's a thought. You're transforming that experience and you can have more distance from it. You don't have to necessarily uh, respond to it. Yeah, but there is that poignancy. I like what you just said, that that to recognize that this moment isn't going to last forever actually mm-hmm. gives it a little bit more meaning. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I have enjoyed talking to you very much. I think there's but mutual vitality going on in having mm-hmm. these conversations. I've learned a lot from you from, I've done a couple of workshops with you and from your book. So it's a great honor for me to be able to talk to you about this directly today and to have you on our podcast. I hope our listeners have found it helpful as well. If I, again, thank you for the invitation. Debbie, uh, uh, thank you for, for very inspiring questions. It's a, uh, so a topic I obviously love to, to talk about and uh, I, I hope to have opportunities also to meet perhaps some of the people who've uh, listened to the, to the podcast, to the interview. I'm always happy to, uh, to, to keep talking about this topic. So don't hesitate to, to contact me if you have even more questions. Wonderful. And I think you occasionally offer some, some workshops all over the place and some online workshops. So folks who want to learn more can, can find you online and, and keep a lookout. Yeah. Well, thank you again very much. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Debbie. Thank you for listening to Psychologist Off the Clock. You can find us on iTunes, Facebook, and Twitter. Music by John Gu and Susie Stevens. And special thanks to our creative producer, Dr. Meg McKelvey. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you are looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources on our website. Our website is offtheclockpsych.com. That's offtheclockpsych.com.